0: Episode 331, Employers Buyer Beware, Six Tricks Wellness and Point Solution Vendors Use to Overstate Their Results. Today, I speak with Al Lewis.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value.
0: My guest today, Al Lewis, was telling me before we hit record that employer customers are vastly worse at evaluating wellness and point solution vendors today than they ever have been in the past. Let's break this down one aspect leading up to the worse than ever is the proliferation of point solutions lately and all the PE private equity dollars flowing into the healthcare space. I mean, you pick up any rock and you'll find 25 healthcare startups underneath it. A second aspect is this, and this is not going to be a news flash for many, but employers really trust their brokers and their EBCs, employee benefit consultants, to put together a good Benefit package on their behalf. If an EBC says buy it, employers click their heels and buy it a lot of times. And with that great power comes great opportunity. We see an uptick in brokers and employee benefit consultants enjoying themselves a little arbitrage-ish money grab by taking money from these startup slash vendors under a variety of umbrellas, while at the same time they call the employers their customers. This is especially profitable and also slimy when done under the cover of darkness because, as with so many aspects of healthcare, these backroom deals often happen without the employer customer knowing that there's a VIG involved in the recommendation process. Al Lewis says he works in the integrity segment of the market. He is well known for outing vendors for basically lies they tell in their marketing. The thing is, though, if a vendor comes to Al and asks questions about how to do it right, Al's always happy to help. You know, he has said that he wants people to learn. And if you're asking questions, it means you're interested in learning. Al has been on the show before, actually multiple times, but one full episode was episode 245. And we dig into wellness that's done to employees, not for them, in that episode. So check that out after you listen to this one if you want more Al. Al also founded the Validation Institute and he's also CEO over at Quizify, links in the show notes. On the show today, Al explains the six major logical fallacies, computational flaws, tricks, if you will, that wellness vendors or point solution vendors may deploy to inflate their proven cost savings. The six watchouts, I guess I'd say, for employers are number one, regression to the mean. Number two. Participants versus non-participants or match controls or propensity scoring. Number three, the trend inflation trick. <laughs> number four, plausibility testing. Number five, actuaries and validation. And number six, overstating engagement. These six things are all of the different logical fallacies some vendors employ in order to overstate their results or outcomes. The Validation Institute has a PDF write-up of each of these flaws, which you can find in the show notes. Bottom line, buyer beware. And also get a broker or an EBC who you know for a fact they're working for you if you're an employer because they've committed in writing to not taking payola from the vendors that they're recommending to you. One footnote is that if you haven't listened to episode 329 with Joe Connolly, you might want to go back and do so. Joe gets into the trend of some services who could potentially start taking on risk. Said another way, if services like these create their own bundles of point solutions and take on the risk of offering said bundle to employers, that could be nice. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Al Lewis, welcome to Relentless Health Value.
1: Well, Stacy, as always, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a great show and it's one of the very few that I actually listen to myself.
0: That, my friend, is is a high honor. Very much appreciated. So y- you've said that employers are vastly worse at evaluating vendors these days. So there's a, a lot of news lately about how, I'm not sure if it's consultants, but it's certainly brokers, are going to now have to be transparent about where their money is coming from. Do you feel like that is going to be a way to ameliorate the situation?
1: Well, that's that's a great question. That that particular piece of legislation only applies to, you know, licensed brokers of record and carriers. And as far as it goes, it's great, but it only goes about 20% of the way. What the legislature didn't realize is that brokers are getting a, a ton of money and consultants from, you know, non-carriers.
0: I understand. So basically all that legislation addresses is the, you know, the large carriers, i.e. the BUCAS, Blue Cross United Cigna. Aetna, Humana, who are paying the brokers to put employers on their plans, it doesn't address all the other vendors that tend to be part of a healthcare solution, maybe, that any given self-insured employer purchases.
1: That's correct. Yes. I mean, they're basically being told by people that they trust that they should do such and such a thing. And And we'll get into the seven elements in a little while. But the people who are recommending them in the case of carriers, they're just taking them and marking them up. In the case of consultants, they get you know paid on the side to quote unquote validate. Yeah. So then employers end up with just massive, in some case, numbers of point solutions that aren't really doing any good. And the way they get evaluated, which we'll get into, makes them appear to be good when in fact
0: they aren't. We talked about consultants and, and, you know, basically consultants get, I don't know, 15% of the, I'm making up a number.
1: They don't actually market up and sell it. They're getting money on the side to, you know, have some kind of revenue model that's not that explicit in the case of consultants. Because remember, they are also getting paid by the, by the employer.
0: So it could be like, oh, do a study for us and assess our, you know, assess our solution. So there's some sort of like fair market value, fair market payment, but it's really a nod and a wink. And we understand if we pay you this money to do that other thing that you're also going to help us basically market it to employers that you work with.
1: Uh, Yeah, I will give you an example because it's public, already public. So Aon validated, quote unquote, validated accolade. Uh, I went and I said, I will bet you a million dollars that these numbers are fabricated. And I pointed out, for instance, that the the people who never contacted Accolade declined at the exact same rate as everybody else declined. So just to use that Aeon and Accolade example, which is already public, if they were genuinely, truly evaluating them after they saw my comments, they would have withdrawn the evaluation.
0: Or at least... I put huge asterisks on it. So what does carriers becoming sellers look like? And you know, like what is we we talked about this a little bit that they're marking it up and selling it, but are there any nuances there? I I think in the case of
1: carriers, I think employers kind of realize that there's a markup there. I mean, the carriers don't. Maybe a few of them do disclose it. But, well, you know, putting my day day hat on as uh, Quizify, when we we sell through carriers, you know, we give them wholesale and they sell retail. And I think it's semi-transparent because the buyer is not, it's not like it's a trusted consulting relationship. You know your carrier is on the other side of the fence. You assume your consultant is on your side of the fence.
0: One of your various not day jobs, Al, is working with the Validation Institute. What's the goal of the Validation Institute? Why did you choose to start it? And you want to just introduce your latest endeavor.
1: The Validation Institute. It was started by Sean Slavensky, formerly of Walmart, and myself. And so, if you go to the Validation Institute for considerably less money than consultants, actuaries will charge. We, if you're a vendor, we will give you a statement that is true that you can use to market. And it's not just that the validation institute says it's true, the validation institute has a
0: credibility guarantee. If I'm a vendor, let's just say that you do an evaluation and it doesn't turn out so well, right? The 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 vendor has some work that they should do. Do you make the evaluation then public or do you oh, say... Of course not. Oh, no, no, no,
1: no. You pay, either get a true statement put up or to learn what you have to do in order to get a true statement put up. So in other words,
0: you'll help the vendor figure out where their weak spots might be and, and what they need to do to legitimately, in an authentic way, get the returns that they want to claim. Yes. Just thinking this through, again, as a vendor, say I have a, you said earlier that that typically, and I don't think that this is in any way surprising, you know, marketing can be optimistic. Relative to outcomes and results. So the Validation Institute, your evaluation of, of what can be claimed is probably going to be more modest than what the marketing department would like to claim. Yes, Which I could see could lead to a bit of an issue if you are a vendor who has gone to the Validation Institute and actually gotten an accurate assessment when you're competing against those who, you know, got their assessment from some consultant with obviously a large confidence. Conflict of interest there. So if I'm an employer hearing from my carrier, and I'm not the most informed employer in the world, and I've got two, you know, potential solutions, and one of them has crazy returns that are amazing, and the other one has very modest returns. You know, I could really see how, from a vendor standpoint, it could be a difficult road to hoe.
1: First of all, a good use of the expression row to hoe. Most people think it's road to hoe. Second, you're absolutely right about that. And we have two recommendations. One is that when you present your promise as a vendor, that you say, if you want to measure the way the industry measures, here's our massive return. If you want to measure validly, this is our return, according to the Validation Institute. And we would invite you to have all of your other vendors go to the Validation Institute and see what they will validate for these other vendors.
0: I grew up in Pennsylvania, Dutch country, Al. If I didn't know how to oh. <laughs> hoe a row, a hoe a
1: row. Right, yeah, I would you had to not do be by, true to, to my heritage. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So let's take through the various ways then that employers are, you know, effectively tricked, I'm going to say. So there are, you sent me these in advance, so I'm going to count them. One, two, three, four, five, six. There are six and then kind of a summary. So let's go through each of these six. The first one is RTM. It's regression to the mean. Let's talk about that. How is that used in a flawed way?
1: If you just evaluate every year the high-risk people who go to low risk, you're going to massively overstate the improvement because people also move in the other direction and you're not counting them. So for instance, let's use the example of Virgin Pulse that just put something out that said that 80% of the highest risk obese people lost weight. So now you think, oh, that's great. People lost weight. Well, it doesn't tell you that, in fact, there are people, I mean, if, if you're overweight, your weight goes up and down. It doesn't count the people whose weight went from lower to higher. So you're still going to have the same number of, re- of people who are obese. They're just going to be somewhat different people. And by the way, they, this is something they've been doing for, even before it was called, even when it was Shape Up the Nation, this is, they were doing this and they actually got called out in the uh, Pittsburgh, what's the uh, newspaper there, Post-Gazette.
0: So in that example, basically you say fifty percent of or whatever it is, you know, people lost weight this year. Meanwhile, the other fifty percent weight went up. So then the next year you get that fifty percent who lost weight. But meanwhile, the first cohort's weight went back up. So it's like every year the same people are losing weight.
1: Yes. And I usually use the smoking example because it's more of a zero one thing that if you smoke half the if you've smoked for a year and quit for a year and everybody in the organization does that you're going to have 50% smokers every year, but your wellness vendor will
0: claim a 100% reduction in smoking every year. Understood. All right. So that's regressed to the mean, which is one logical fallacy that tends to show up in (laughs) marketing reports and a nice chart and graph. Let's talk about participants compared to non-participants. What does that mean? It has been proven
1: up, down, sideways, inside out. I even, I'm willing to bet any amount of money on this that participants outperform non-participants regardless of the program and in fact there's a famous example that actually Ron Getzel put together as a matter of fact that showed that he separated the participants and the non-participants in year zero but for various reasons the program didn't start until 24 months later and 24 months later the participants already had dramatically better outcomes than the non-participants, even though there hadn't been a program to participate in. So it's like selection bias. In other words, like people self-select. Of course, yes, yes. That's just one of many examples. And in fact, this is probably a good time. I can just tell you what just came out in, in health affairs and how that's relevant. Sure. If your vendor didn't tell you about it, which would not surprise me, Health Affairs just put out this terrific study, three-year study of a wellness program at I think it was BJ's Wholesale Club. And they did a cluster randomization where a bunch of the outlets were given the wellness program and a bunch weren't. And there was zero difference, zero. After one year, after two years, and after three years, I think it was actually 18 months and three years. In any kind of measurable outcome, between those two groups. You know why? Because they did not separate participants from non-participants. It was done at a a randomized control level. And then within the group, within the the outlets of BJ's where the program was offered, you could participate or not. But before the comparison was made, the participants and the non-participants in the stores that were offered the program were added back together.
0: Well, let me ask you this. If somebody self-selects as a participant, that could be a cry for help. Right. Like you could take that as a cry for I want stuff. I want help here. So although there's no way that this is going to save money, because if it's a cry for help, then potentially the participants hadn't been able to get help before. Therefore, you know, their spend was very minimal because they weren't able to get the help that they needed or at least in this particular example hypothetical example but then you know you run a program and if they're actually engaging with it and i know that have their own issues but let's just say they're engaging with this program, then they did get something out of it. It's not a financial benefit for sure, but maybe they feel well cared for. Maybe they feel better. Maybe their quality of life is better, even though they're, you know, technically maybe their medical outcomes, which weren't even evaluated before, are better somehow.
1: Well, the, that, the study covered that, and it didn't just look at... I mean, for, savings were out of the question. They looked at measures of outcomes and risk scores and you know, non-financial stuff, and there was no change. Now, to your point, the one thing that did change was that participants were more interested in actively managing their weight, but that's not the same as they lost weight. I mean, I'm too thin. I try to manage my weight you know, by working out all the time. I don't, I don't gain muscle. You know, It's just not that easy to change your body type. But they were more interested in doing it. That was the best outcome they could come up with. Now, to your point in general, and I promised there would be good news. The validation is, too, is one piece of good news. Another piece of good news is that if you are offering wellness in your organization and you offer it for employees, you do wellness for employees instead of two employees the participant, the people who want the wellness will be able to access it without any of the penalties or fines or personal health information, any of that stuff. You know, maybe you just make better food available. Maybe you, you put a, a gym in place or, or give people discounts on gym memberships. Whatever it is, if it's voluntary,
0: I'm all for it. So if people self-select and they choose something that they really want Then, you know, as an employee who's taking advantage of those tools, which are freely offered, and there's no, you know, no harm, no foul if they do it or they don't do it, then you could get employees who feel like they're getting help that they seek.
1: They may appreciate it. And the important thing is employee appreciation. We'll get to that in part six. Another thing that vendors and consultants will do is they won't just say participants versus non-participants. They'll say participants versus matched controls which is basically non-participants who happen to have similar demographics. So when you see the word matched, words match controls, you can throw it out. The other thing they do is something called propensity scoring, where they say, well, you know, based on our magic analysis here, the people who were not offered the program are equivalent because they would have done the program had they been offered it. Now, how they get inside people's heads and figure that out is anybody's guess, but I've not been able to even figure out what my wife is thinking sometimes.
0: (laughs) All right, so we've talked about regress to the mean. We just talked about participants compared to non-participants or whatever you want to call them. Let's talk about number three logical flaw, which is trend inflation.
1: Ah, trend inflation. Well. Trend inflation can be easily spotted because everything improves. What a vendor will do or a consultant or actuary is simply draw a line upwards and then say, see, we outperform the trend. The guy who invented this, is a guy by the name of Seth Serxner, who now works at uh, Optum, and he actually stated, he said, you can show more savings by drawing a higher trend line, which is, in fact, the definition of
0: trend inflation. So the whole idea here is I just sit at my desk, I sharpen my pencil, and I decide that what the trend is going to be is an upward curve of some kind. I'm like, next year it should 20%. It's going to go up 20% because of, I don't know, I could make something up. And then you can show with the solution how much that trend will be decreased.
1: How much it did go down, yes. There was another example from a company called Wellsteps where they drew a line up and they said, see, the the cost would have gone up, but they went down. But then they accidentally put out the cost for individual people and the individuals themselves, the average individual went up, even though the group went down. The reason was that there's simply fewer people in the group, so they didn't disclose that. And the most recent example is Accolade, where they basically drew an 8% trend line and said, we've selected a few accounts and that they did not go up at all. So we outperformed by 8%. Well, then what they did by mistake was, I assume it was a mistake, was they accidentally showed that the people with no risks improved at 8% versus trend, even though these were people who did not call Accolade because nothing was wrong with them.
0: Okay, so there were people who cost nothing, but yet there was an 8% savings amongst that cohort, even though they cost nothing to begin with.
1: Yes, yes. Meanwhile, the costs went down everywhere. Every disease category went down, including diseases that are impossible to reduce money on, like asthma. You have to medicate about 100 people to avoid an ER visit. Things that no other vendors ever claimed savings in, like mood disorders or mental anxiety. Or hypothyroidism, which is, I might add, extremely rare in the under 65. And then they save vastly more money in cancer than even a cancer vendor. A cancer vendor would have blushed at by claiming of savings of 26%, which means everybody with cancer saved 26% by just as soon as you get cancer, you call accolade and they say, oh, here's what you should do about it.
0: Effectively, with this trend inflation, someone has figured out, and I know this is rocket science here, but, you know, X minus Y equals savings, right? So if you tinker around with X or you tinker around with Y, you can uh, sure. right. yeah, you yeah. can change savings. All right. So that's trend inflation. How about plausibility testing?
1: Okay. So plausibility testing, you get this massive improvement in cost. And if, if you're doing a cross-sectional risk analysis, which is the way you should do it. So every year, assuming you do it at all, which probably shouldn't, but every year you're doing biometric screens and health risk assessments and you find that maybe you know 1% improvement in, in risk factors. So you get these trivial reductions in risk, but then you go look at the savings line and you see these massive reductions in cost. It's called a plausibility check if, in fact, you find that the savings does not match with the Reduction in uh, reduction in risk.
0: Basically, what you're saying is, in two different spots, it's listed what the reduction in risk is, and then someplace else, there's a reduction in cost. So the idea is that if you look in the one area and you see reductions that are, as you as you put it, trivial, then you can't have massive reductions in cost if the impact of the program is marginal.
1: No, in fact, we actually have a, a phrase for it. So you take these savings. Divided by the risk reduction, and you should get a fractional number because it takes a while for risk reduction to translate into savings, and also very few. You have a hard time coming up with more than two or three things that are really risk related anyway. I mean, think of things that have gone wrong with you or me. we've talked about you know tick-borne illnesses, and in my case, I had this you know wacky bladder thing happen. But most of what happens in the under sixty five population has nothing to do with you know heart attacks and diabetes. But leaving all that aside, divide the savings by the reduction in risk and, and you get a multiple and that multiple is called the wishful thinking factor, which conveniently abbreviates
0: WTF. <laughs> All right, so that would be a great way to end the plausibility testing logical flaw. So we've talked about regression to mean participants compared to non-participants. We've talked about trend inflation and, and just now plausibility testing. What about actuaries and validation? This
1: is classic now. So the classic thing is to say, we had actuaries look at this. And so somehow actuaries are magicians and they're also extremely honest. And if you pay actuaries to validate something, they will do the whole George Washington cherry tree thing and they will tell you that in fact, no, it didn't save money. No, of course not. An actuary wouldn't stay in business if they didn't give you the the result you wanted. That's one of the reasons the Validation Institute exists is because actuaries are easily corrupted. And then the second thing that people do, and this is becoming much more common, is they will pay to have a study peer-reviewed. There's a, you know, I'm, I'm 65. When I was 35, there were like five major journals for the general population. All of them were owned by nonprofits that were sort of above suspicion, New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of American Medical Association, and so on. And you could pretty much trust what was in them. Well, now there's Uh, probably about a thousand journals, and 900 and something of them have figured out that it is much easier to make money if you charge the people writing the study and give away the result. So people can say, oh, we got this peer-reviewed. And nobody says, oh, well, that's, you know, I should see if they actually had to just, you know, this is a paid ad, or whether they actually went to a legitimate journal. No, the words peer-reviewed, have magic. And the whole journal industry has figured that out. And I mean, I said there are thousands. There are probably many, many, many hundreds of journals that are owned by for-profit companies now that do this, have this practice. They're called open access.
0: What I'm understanding is just because somebody has actuary on their business card doesn't mean that you know they are above reproach. It just means they're really good at math.
1: I mean, frankly, I'm not sure they are so good at math. It means that, and now remember, when, when you actuaries are trained to use risk factors to predict future spending, or in the case of life, life insurance actuaries, you know, death risk, whatever, they're not trained in population health economics, which is a completely different discipline, frankly, the one that I invented back in the late 90s and I wrote the book on, two completely different animals. So for instance, to use the example of Accolade, where they claim uh, savings in asthma, if you were to say to Aon, what was the rate of asthma emergency room events per thousand before and then after, they would have no idea. They would have no idea. But that is population health economics. You look at the impact of, an, for instance, an asthma program on utilization of ER and inpatient for asthma.
0: Some of these companies are having in-house actuaries. What are they then doing?
1: But they're, they're, they're doing exactly what I just described, which is they're coming up with ways of uh, showing savings. I mean, there are, there are exceptions to that rule, I'm sure. I, I, I can think of one. I mean, I, I can name names. A guy by the name of Keith Passwater. I'm very impressed with his, uh, his work. He, he doesn't uh, suffer fools lightly. All right. Last one. Overstating engagement. So essentially, every vendor overstates engagement because what they do is they only survey the people who are engaged so you're going to get this very high satisfaction level and i mentioned before how if you compare lavongo's self-stated satisfaction to the ratings that are on amazon there's going to be a chasm a chasm between those two so uh, this just to go back to the validation institute they have a free tool which measures engagement very valid completely validly and the way they do it is instead of just sort of cherry picking the people who, who you know, like the program and, and measuring them and cherry picking people who liked another program, you send the exact same survey to a cross section of random employees in your organization. And you survey about, I don't know, five or six or seven programs, whatever number you want. Okay? And you're going to ask basically two questions if you're in, the, in the interest of time. You're going to say, How often did you use this and was it useful? You multiply those two things together and you get an engagement score, number of uses times usefulness. Then you look at how much those programs cost. And on a y-axis, you put the cost of the program. So then you're going to have the engagement score measured against the cost of the program. You will be able to tell what the most cost-effective programs are. Just by looking at the graph and just, you know, as 30 second shameless plug, Quizify guarantees being twice as engaging per dollar spent as the average of all of your other benefits.
0: So we've talked about the six ways that maybe this is the I want to inflate my results playbook that we've given people, I hope. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Actually, you no. Know, it's funny you should say that. It's funny you should say that because there is a vendor that when I read their stuff, their methodology, it appeared, it literally appeared like they had gone through my book, figured out all the valid ways to measure and done exactly the opposite.
0: Hopefully that will not be the impact of this podcast, Al. Well, I,
1: hopefully, you know, you've got uh, buyers out here listening to you as well. So this this will be great for them.
0: Yes, precisely. So if you try any of these moves... We'll have enough educated employers who will call you out. And you can shortcut the
1: whole thing either by going to the validation institute and looking up the vendors who are validated, and but read their validation carefully to make sure that what they are promising you is not greater than what they are validated for. And when you do an RFP, just ask vendors. You don't have to tell them to go get validated. You just say to them one simple question. Are you validated by the validation institute? And if not, why not? and that will tell you more about a vendor than anything else you could ask.
0: So is it really expensive to go to the validation institute?
1: No, no, it's uh, it's it's rare that it costs more than five figures. That it's that it hits five figures. One of the secret Stacy is actually is far easier to measure things validly than it is to try to, you know, cook up some way of measuring them invalidly.
0: Many of these point solutions claim a far superior CX or UX, in other words, customer experience or right. or online experience. And if they pull people out of the traditional healthcare settings because they're, you know, so much more sticky, like how urgent care has yanked people out of PCP offices because it's just so much more convenient and and mobile first to some of these uh, urgent care places. How does that impact the conversation that we just had?
1: I say more power to them. If they make true statements, if they have a better mousetrap that maybe doesn't save money, but that people genuinely prefer, and I myself would, there's an urgent care maybe half a mile from here. If I need anything, I go there. I'm not gonna hang out at the PC. More power to them. It's when people start, well, you take Fitbit, for example, and people love their Fitbit, some people, and, and you know, I, I used to wear and I got tired of recharging it. It was useful. But then if Fitbit pays Springbok, to say that they can reduce healthcare costs by 50 percent, that's where I have the issue.
0: It's a matter of integrity, authenticity, that, you know, the, the market is, is rife with so much misinformation and made up facts. It could potentially cost even more money and potentially real solutions that actually will have real impact on people's health are being overlooked in favor of smoke and mirrors. Al, is there anything that I neglected to ask you that you want to throw into this conversation?
1: This is my third that we've done in, in I don't know, four or five years or so. And you're, you're the best at this. There's nothing, I'm sure I'll think of something in an hour, but there's nothing major that you didn't touch.
0: Well, I appreciate that, Al. And I appreciate your willingness to go along with the interrogation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate your interrogating me.
0: Al Lewis, so if people are interested in learning more about the Validation Institute or Quizify, where would you send them? Uh, Just send
1: it to me to start with. It's very easy to remember the uh, email al at quizify.com. The only thing you got to remember is there are two Zs in Quizify. And just say, you know, you want more info on the Validation Institute, and I'll forward the message, or you want to learn how wiser employees can make healthier decisions, and then I'll love you. Al Lewis, thank you
0: so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey Perry. Thank you for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com.
1: And then also charge the employers for putting the programs in place. And that's basically, honey, I'm going to be on the blooper reel here. So, how much of that did you get?